I think we're ready to start. So my name is uh, Anne Phillips, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this public lecture in the uh, Gender Institute series, Gendering the Social Sciences. Uh, this particular lecture is um, co-sponsored by the Gender Institute and the Department of uh, Geography and Environment, um, because our, our lecturer tonight, uh, Melissa Wright, is um, Professor of Women's Studies in the Department of Geography at uh, Penn State University. Um, her work is very much uh, framed by issues of feminism and social justice. Um, and she's been doing uh, a, a lot of uh, the, the kind of the empirical work is sort of based very much on issues of uh, research on violence, um, particularly though not exclusively, I think, um, violence against women along the Mexico-US border. Um, but also looking at the social movements that have emerged to protest this. Um, of uh, her uh, previous work, I think I would just particularly mention her 2006 book, Disposable Women and Other Myths of Global Capitalism, which was be, has been very uh, widely reviewed, including um, with a, being the subject of a review symposium in social and cultural geography. And th that draws on research across uh, the US-Mexico and China, um, analyzing the, the processes, the race and gendered processes that produce the disposable third world women workers. Um, and I think this is a book that makes, makes a political as well as an academic contribution, uh, documenting not just the processes themselves, but also the many ways in which people uh, organize to resist the dehumanizing effects of global capitalism. Uh, Melissa is talking to us tonight on the topic of gendered violence and drug wars, the Mexico-US border, um, and drawing uh, very much on a, a post-structuralist feminist and Marxist positions uh, to address recent events in the Mexico border town of Ciudad Juarez. So, Thank you very much. Yes, okay, if you, if go over there. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I should just say that uh, Melissa will speak for about, uh, what, 50 minutes? Yeah. And then we should have a good half hour for question and answers uh, from the audience. Okay, no, can, can you hear me Melissa. back up, up there? Sounds, yeah, great. Well, Anne, thank you very much for that generous uh, and thorough introduction. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, the Gender Institute, um, particular Diane Perrins, who invited me and um, stuck with me uh, once we were working out the arrangements, and the I'd also like to thank the Department of Geography and the Environment. Uh, I've really been looking forward to coming here to give this talk, and it really is a treat for me to be here. So thank you also to the audience for coming here this evening. I have been writing this paper while in conversation with activists and progressive scholars of the Mexican border city, Ciudad Juarez, which is in the state of Chihuahua, located on the country's northern border. It's a very large state. It's the largest state uh, province in the country. Uh, and it borders uh, the United States at Texas, uh, West Texas, obviously, and southern New Mexico. I've been conducting research there uh, since 1991. One of the questions that uh, many of us who are committed to living and working and thinking uh, politically about life in Mexico and along its border, one of the questions that we are now facing that we must think through very carefully is how do we organize politically 
in a context of oppression and fear. This is not a question unique to the city, and so addressing it, I, I believe, bears significance beyond this place. Ciudad Juarez is a, is a place of historic protests, from the Mexican Revolution to the radical education movements of the 1950s and 60s, which were rural movements, to the urban social movements and the dirty war of the 1970s, to the movements for democracy in the 1980s, and the protests against femicide in the 1990s. It is a, has a history of long, a long history of movements in its, in, within the city and its surroundings. But right now, there is a crisis in the civic sector. There's a lack of protest, even though many are calling for it and thinking very hard about how to do it at, a, and a, at this particular time of social and economic despair. The violence in the city that has gained some international attention now is related to what is typically, typically called a drug war that has taken an unprecedented toll on younger generations. Between 2007 and 2010, the murder rate for people between the ages of 20 and 24 has increased over 400%, leading some analysts to decry the extermination of a generation in a demographic blip. More than 9,000 people have been murdered in this city since 2008, with, with over 400,000 having been murdered in other parts of the country in relation to this so-called war. These numbers correspond to the years since the Mexican <coughs> President Felipe, Cal Felipe Calderón declared war against the cartels and deployed in the year 2008 several thousand military troops to Mexican cities, Ciudad Juarez being prominent among them. Then two years later, he dispatched the federal police to the city. The military took charge of many of the uh, affairs usually run by the elected mayor of the city. In other words, the mayor handed over uh, many of his responsibilities to a former general. And then the federal police then took over some of those responsibilities. So in other words, the democratic process has been interrupted. The war has seen the militarization of cities beyond Juarez, and it has also seen the appearance of the president in military uniform. Now these are very much departures in Mexico from its history. Mexico has had a, a very particular history in relation to its, uh, the separation of the, uh, the civilian president from the military uh, in the country, and we are now seeing some changes. The U.S. government has supported this militarization and the uh, government's de declaration of drug war and has authorized an unprecedented aid package and is currently now uh, debating in Congress uh, about authorizing more. <clears throat> a leading public scholar and former state legislator of the state of Chihuahua, Victor Quintana, has written, the city now known for femicides is now a city, is now known for juvenicidio. That is, the city known for feminicidio is now known for juvenicidio. Juvenicidio meaning the killing of youth with impunity a wordplay that he has taken from feminicidio, which was the killing of women with impunity. He goes on to say, the young people who now commit crimes are the children of structural adjustment, of neoliberalism, of the minimalist state. Now is the time for move, to move from critique to resistance, acción. So I include myself as one of many scholars and activists who seek to step up to this challenge by offering analyses or whatever insights we might be able to come up with from our toolkits and collective years of scholarly experience to do what we can turn, what we can do to turn critique into some kind of action or contribution to action. This paper is just is one such effort. 
Here I try to expose some of the obstacles that organizers face as they try to generate effective uh, protests and progressive alliances. That is, try to think through what, what is creating a paralysis in the civil sector at a time when people so much want to protest. One obstacle I focus on is the explanation of the violence as drug violence and of the violence as pertaining to a drug war. Um, and uh, what I try to do is I try to expose or try to question what we think that those words, what that explanation tells us, what kind of knowledge it seems to set up before the fact of really looking into things. Something to keep in mind is that over 90% of these murders remain uninvestigated. That is, almost 95% of the murders remain uninvestigated, those that are called related to drug violence. This is a very serious problem. In another article, one that came out recently in the Feminist Journal Signs, I connect this drug war discourse, and so I, I really focus this as a discourse analysis of the drug war. I connect the drug war discourse to a form of necropolitics, that is, Ashil Mbembe's uh, uh, expansion of Michel Foucault's idea of biopolitics, uh, in which Foucault develops the idea of governance through the reproduction of life, uh, such that it produces the state and the subject in particular ways. And Mbembe turns this and says, we must also think about the reproduction of power through the production of death, uh, that is, the making of life in relation to death, and look at these in joint ways. So we need to look at how corpses and the embodiment of death the way that death is enacted and the way that death is interpreted in the spectacle of death contribute to the making of power and hierarchy and subjectivity. I bring to this a feminist analysis, which I think is sorely lacking uh, from both of these accounts and very much uh, very significant and central to these processes and certainly Juarez uh, brings this in sharp relief. Uh, for many of the reasons, one of, one of the many reasons why I think this is so important is that the discussion of the biopolitics and necropolitics hinges upon certain understandings of the public and the private, uh, the idea of the corpse in public or in private place, life in public or in private place, and feminist analysis has really focused in on um, denaturalizing that demarcation between the public and the private, the public citizen, the <coughs> private citizen, the public corpse and the private corpse, the street, the home, it's, and so forth. The uh, feminist analysis also really focuses in on the significance of embodiment and in uh, geography, uh, the, uh, the location of this embodiment and the making of the location of embodiment and subjectivity and power is an important part of this analysis. Now, I don't get into all the details of that theory in today's talk. I have a lot of details uh, from Mexico that I want to present, but if you have any questions about that theory, I would be very happy to talk about it uh, in the question period. So today I'm going to present this discourse analysis, uh, and I do so by um, turning my attention first to the social movements, that is, to the moments when there was uh, and have been some effective uh, uh, attempts uh, and some successful outcomes to social movements in Ciudad Juarez under very difficult circumstances as well. And I look at, at these, this earlier set of movements from the 1990s against femicide, that is against the killing of women with impunity, to ask what are some of the lessons that we can draw from this for thinking through what, what are some of the obstacles and challenges facing uh, the formation of social movements of Ciudad Juarez today 
Uh, many of the people involved in the social movements against femicide are still very much involved. Femicide is still very much occurring. There is a violence across the board. Uh, but the, what, what has declined has been the social activism in the public sphere, and so this talk is a way to think about that, and so I start with the femicide movement. So here is uh, the talk itself. Some 10 years ago, the Mexican feminist activist Esther Chavez declared that the violence that terrorized women and their families in northern Mexico, particularly in the city of Ciudad Juarez, exposed something awful about the state, about capitalism, and about the hostility aimed at the country's poor. She predicted that if the root causes of this violence were left in place, that the city would become a horror, a place so torn by the relentless forces of capitalism, misogyny, and despair that it would become unlivable. I'm sorry to say that the prescience of her, wor of her words were, was revealed during her lifetime. Since 2006, when uh, President Felipe Calderón declared war against the, drugs, uh, the country's drug cartels, more than 40,000 Mexicans have died in relation to, those war, to this war, with 9,000 of those perishing in Ciudad Juarez. Shortly after Esther Chavez's death in December 2010, some bodies were dumped near her home in a middle-class neighborhood. This is now a regular occurrence across the city, in the poor and elite areas, on public and private property. The brutality of the violence and the threat of kidnappings have touched all corners of the city. Most of those gunned down are poor young men, although there are plenty of women in the numbers. Most of those pulling the triggers are poor young men. As one longtime activist and colleague at the city's public university put it to me, the fear is overwhelming. No one wants to go outside. The fear is affecting our ability to think. These words resonate with the political theorist Hannah Arendt's warning that fear, particularly fear of the public, spa of public space, contributes to epistemological crises. Fear of the public impedes our ability to think and generate knowledge, not just about the violence, but about its connection to politics, economy, and society. For this reason, she warned, epistemological crises are the breeding grounds of totalitarianism. Many leftist scholars in Mexico have raised similar warnings. There is a palpable, palpable concern among the left in the country that it is headed in a very dangerous direction that the violence and the political and economic cir circumstances that allow it to flourish are laying the path for a military state and that people are too afraid to stop it. Within this context, many people express fear of being in public space, fear of the military, fear of the criminals, basically fear of men who might kill, assault, or kidnap them. And even the most seasoned activists express fear of holding a protest, of being seen publicly, of exposing their families to risk. So what can a feminist and Marxist geographer offer in this context? An obvious place to start is to analyze the crisis that Esther Chavez identified as the convergence of capitalist exploitation, the Mexican state, and social hatred. Critical geography offers some powerful tools for making this analysis, namely in the areas of feminist Mexican, uh, Marxist scholarship, sorry, <laughs> Marxist scholarship. The Marxist analysis of capitalism as a series of accelerating crises explains how the embrace of industrialization as a form of social development has created extreme disparities in wealth and poverty throughout the country, with a depression of wages and the cycling of boom and bust, especially in Ciudad Juarez, with the mid-1990s merely being the manic phase of the current spike in unemployment and recession. The critiques of neoliberalism explain why Ciudad Juarez, more so than other places, 
is experiencing the uncertainty that has come from some four decades of privatization of social welfare, uh, much earlier than, than occurred in other parts of the country. The city being the test case for the maquiladora program, that is the export processing assembly factories in the mid-1960s, about the same time that the word neoliberal was coined and which saw the combination of public sub subsidies for industrialization accompanied by a defunding of social services such that large populations of female-headed households expanded the city's vulnerable neighborhoods that lacked basic utilities. These are the neighborhoods where despair and poverty combined to create a large reserve of labor, not only for the formal economy, but for the informal one of drug consumption and production, an economy driven by the shattered dreams of migrants who came to the city looking for that better life. Feminist scholars have led the critique of this kind of development in Mexico as they have shown how the production of gender is a linchpin for the functioning of the division of labor within factories as well as within the neoliberal politics that deny the working poor decent pay in urban services and contribute to their um, experience of being treated as if they were disposable human beings. The critique of neoliberalism that focuses on securitization also clarifies the political context of the North American Free Trade Agreement which was ratified across North America in 1993, the same year that the US government changed its border surveillance strategy to a militarized approach aimed at containment. This new strategy was inaugurated at the El Paso Ciudad Juarez border and laid the blueprint for the militarized expansion of border surveillance that has seen the building of walls and fortifications along much of the nearly 2,000 mile divide today. This has occurred simultaneous to the deployment of U.S. troops to, to patrol this friendly border, which has involved the condemning of public lands uh, and the closing uh, and, and the forced uh, uh, con condemnation of private property to be, to be patrolled by federal forces. Basically, while the Mexico-U.S. border further opened to big business, it closed to poor labor. Uh, that is, to legal, legal ways for poor labor to get across and made it very difficult for the undocumented workers to, to get across to do what they've been doing for many decades. Thus creating lucrative opportunities for the expansion of illegal economies built on the accelerated trafficking of human bodies and drugs. Smuggling networks expanded. It doesn't really matter so much what they're smuggling. The networks of the smuggling expanded during this time. This analysis indicates that it is no coincidence that the Juarez drug cartel formed also in 1993 and expanded not just the smuggling of drugs, but also the creation of a domestic consumer drug market. Mexico is now a consumer as well as a producer and distributor of illegal drugs, something that was not indicative or characteristic of the country before 1994. Feminist scholarship on the violence that has accompanied such strategic shifts in the political economy of the Mexico-U.S. border explains how the discursive production of naturalized social differences, sex, race, class, among others, affects the daily experience of neoliberalism, securitization, and the gendering of a city plagued with sexual violence, exploitation, and fear. This scholarship also exposes the stakes in the protests against violence that activists have come to call femicide as a part of a social movement that, like NAFTA, the Juarez Cartel, and the militarized U.S. border policy surfaced in 1993. The anti-femicide movement was the country's first to turn gendered violence into a political challenge for the state and transnational corporations and for their reliance on various forms of social hatred to create vulnerable populations. 
Yet, as the current events in northern Mexico illustrate, critiques of the crises generated by capitalism are not in and of themselves enough. Progressive scholarship must push further into the realm of action. We must, I believe, respond to the call of progressive scholars and activists such as Victor Quintana, who call for a transformation of critique into, into political strategy and of putting theories to use as tools for creating political responses to abuses of government, to neoliberal entrenchments, to governance through fear, that is, to necropolitics, as some people must, that is, that some people, the idea that some people must die so that others may live. To put critique into action requires talking with people, getting into the messy worlds of daily life, where theoretical symmetries and logical explanations don't always hold up but still indicate that, that these, that in doing so, I believe, the theory can help indicate the greater significance of the mundane and daily world. Such work, <coughs> for instance, is found within the writings of the communist activist authors known as the Invisible Committee, who in their reflections on the 2005 Paris riots exposed the politics of language and symbol that is central to the subversion of neoliberal political economy in that context. As they write, revolutions, quote, take the shape of music, end of quote, against the imp imposition of empire and its rhythmic dispersal of reality at the intersection of discourse and materiality. Interpretation over the meaning of events as indications of resistance or otherwise is a key part of this struggle. These methodologically engaged imaginings of power, of crisis, and of subversion directly resonate with the words of scholars and activists in Northern Mexico today, who, like the Invisible Committee, identify the need to launch battles over the meaning of events and over the significance of the violence. For instance, as Victor Quintana has written, the violence in Northern Mexico reflects a, quote, war of interpretation over the meaning of the violence, over what the violence indicates, over who causes it, over who suffers, over the interpretation of the corpses, where they are dumped in the place, the places of assassinations and uh, these kinds, and what's called the drug war. To understand what Quintana means by war of interpretation and the stakes in it, I examine the challenges that activists in Mexico face today as they struggle to, to against the, the triad identified by Esther Chavez of capitalism, a corrupt state, and gendered violence. First, I turn my attention to how this war has unfolded in the social movement against femicide as activists have politicized violence against women and in so doing have challenged the neoliberalizing Mexican state and global capitalist exploitation. I then turn my attention to how the war of interpretation plays out in the Mexican government's war against the drug cartels and how at stake in the meaning of violence itself is the meaning of Ciudad Juarez as a city where the state, where democracy, where global capitalism and where everyday people are fighting for their place in it. Okay, so fighting femicide. In the early 1990s, when Esther Chavez and a handful of other women headed to the Ciudad Juarez's mayor's office to show him a list they had, that they had compiled of murdered women and girls, they did not anticipate that this event would be the first official protest against what came to be called femicide. As Esther said, quote, we had an, appoint to meet, uh, an appointment to meet with him, but he stood us up. So we said, well, what do we do now? And then we just decided that we would walk into his office and occupy it. It wasn't our plan. We were expecting to meet with him to talk in a reasonable way about the violence. She laughed. I was very naive in the beginning. 
Chavez, like many others, believed that the reason why the city administration was not doing anything about the obvious spike in violence directed at women and girls was because they didn't know about it. She, as a columnist in one of the local dailies, had urged the paper's editor to headline the violence on the front page, a move she thought that would push municipal officials to take action. And the meeting with the mayor was to be a follow-up to discuss strategies for addressing it. Quote, I didn't anticipate that they would not see these murders as a problem, she said. What kind of person would call that violence normal? That is a very sick version of normal. And with that impromptu occupation and the formation of the first organization against the violence, which was the name which was uh, created on the spot, these women launched the anti-femicide movement and began to fight over the interpretation of the violence as normal and the associated meaning for the economy, politics, and social life in globalizing Mexico. One year later, their new activist organization had been joined by about a dozen <coughs> others to form La Coordinadora de Organizaciones No Gubernamentales en Pro de la Mujer, which I call the coalition, that is the coalition of nonprofit organizations for women, and I just call it the coalition. Most of the participating organizations, this was a coalition of many different organizations which had formed in the 80s and 90s precisely around the, the, the needs of northern Mexico in relation to the massive migration from other parts of the country uh, of particularly young women in female-headed households as they were going to work in the factories. So, and then there were some organizations also that would worked on democratization movements and some human rights and economic development um, and education. So this was a coalition of groups that formed in 1994, a year after the occupation of the mayor's office. Um, the coalition held press conferences and protests to present their demands that the city government and the city's export processing firms uh, that they address the violence. In concrete terms, they called for street lighting, safer bus route, routes, and flexible work schedules. They demanded that the state government conduct competent investigations into the crimes and that governing elites confront the cultural, political, and economic context that justified violence against women and that established the conditions for killing them with impunity. With these demands, the coalition linked the violence to the political economy of export processing that had transformed the agricultural fields of northern Mexico into industrial parks and squatter settlements full of young working women and their children. As the director of an organization that worked with sex workers told me, quote, in, in 1997 she said this to me, quote, they did not want to see the politics behind the violence. That's what we made them see. Political and corporate elites, however, resisted these demands on the basis that the violence against the women, as the then Chihuahua governor Francisco Barrio infamously stated in 1995, was, quote, normal for the city. And they articulated this interpretation through a discourse that associated the victims with a negative pre presentation of prostitutes, putas. That is, as women who are contaminated by their activities on the street and who, in turn, invite the violence that they suffer. I refer to this discourse of that of the, of the public woman in a context in which to say mujer pública, public woman, is a way to say puta or whore a meaning which stands in stark contrast to that of hombre público, or public man, which is another way of saying citizen. Taken to its logical extreme, the public woman discourse explains that, while unfortunate, the deaths of such women, of putas, are not only normal, that whores create all kinds of problems, but even desirable, since this violent removal of public women from the street rest restores the moral and political balance of society as a place characterized by public men or upstanding citizens. 
And on the basis of this association of the victims with public women, the political and corporate elites argued that the violence reflected a crisis within the patriarchal family, which could not control its female members. Esther Chavez summed up this attitude in a press uh, interview that she gave in 1999 when she said, the police say the dead women and girls were hookers or that they were heroin users. Their whole point is that it's somehow the fault of these girls. We are supposed to believe these women are responsible for their own deaths. End of quote. Or as the United Nations Commission stated also in 1999, governing elites created the impression that the victims, quote, were looking to be murdered, end of quote. The compatibility of this logic of the public woman discourse with neoliberal political economy is clear. The discourse privatizes the issue of public safety. It minimizes the responsibility of the state and says the problem is, is that of families. It's a private problem. Uh, in other words, the discourse of public women absolves the state and the transnational maquilas from any of the urban problems that have resulted from the massive industrialization and the migration of poor people to a revenue-starved city. The maquilas fought against taxation, the Mexican government cut its subsidies for tortillas and milk, while a discourse of public women stigmatized working women as dangerous and even worthless while they tried to make a living in this, in this tough city. The problems of public women, in short, were private ones. They were not worthy of better pay or better services, such as housing, sewage, education, or health care, and their deaths were not worthy of worry. They were normal deaths given the kind of women that they were. This is a particular kind of necropolitics. Without recognizing the power of this discourse of public women that governing elites used as technology for crafting a neoliberal state around a shrinking pub public sector in a service-starved uh, city full of working poor women, it is impossible to understand the political strategies of the coalition as it organized a frontal assault against this discourse of public women as a way to organize at the nexus of class and gender politics. To do so, they borrowed tactics from other social movements in Mexico and Latin America in which activists referred to the victims of violence as hijos, innocent children, in challenges that, uh, in a way to challenge state com condemnations of the victims of violence as communists or terrorists, or as in the case of femicide, as whores, that is, as a subject who represents a kind of family terrorist, a woman who destroys families, communities, and nations with her dangerous sexuality. In this way, the coalition fought against the public women discourse by asserting that the victims were buenas hijas, good daughters, who were supporting not just their families, but the economy of the region. As I have discussed elsewhere, this strategy is indeed contradictory as it leaves intact the binary separating public and private women, that is, uh, asserting that the victims are private daughters even though they are in public space as a way to fight against the discourse for condemning uh, them for being public. But it does challenge the geographic underpinnings of the discourse of public women to claim that the victims have rights to be safe in the city and its public spaces. In other words, being in public does not mean that a woman is guilty of being a public woman. So they are fighting for women's rights to be in the city, but not fighting against this logic. And that's something I get into and elsewhere I'm happy to talk about it. By the late 1990s, the coalition had accomplished some success in its battle to, cha to change the interpretation of the violence as normal. Under domestic and international public pressure, the Mexican <laughs> government appointed a special prosecutor to investigate the murders, as happened in the mid-1990s. An office was formed to provide support for victims' families. 
many maquilas and uh, instated violence prevention programs and offered safer transportation, and candidates for municipal to federal offices had, by the end, had to, by the end of the decade, they had to address the issue of femicide. The coalition had turned violence against women into a political problem for the first time in the country's history. By the mid-2000s, delegations from several countries, along with special commissions by the United Nations and a highly publicized Amnesty International report, added to the pressure to, the, to end the interpretation of the violence as normal. Increased scrutiny on labor conditions, on the lack of investment in public infrastructure, and neoliberal budget cuts, and on misogyny put public of political officials and maquila executives on the defensive within and outside the country. In response to the pressure, the political and corporate elite changed their tactics for fighting the war over the interpretation of the violence, and they did so by once again putting the old discourse of public women to some new use. They accomplished this by turning their attention to the anti-femicide activists and, and taking their attention from the victims. That is, so they focused on the activists whom they blamed for a, quote, social disintegration of society, as one public official put it, on the basis that they, like public women in general, caused social hysteria. In 2007, the state attorneys general uh, announced that the activists were, quote, profiting with dead girls, lucrando con las muertas, an allegation that drew its strength from a symbolic linking of the activists with the idea that they were prostituting the stories of the victims to an international public always looking for juicy tales of sex and violence along the border. The activists fought back by announcing that the state government had declared war, guerra, against civil society. But the damage was done, and the association of the activists with opportunistic public women has stuck and continues to be a problem. Sensing this discursive victory, government and corporate officials increased their blaming of the activists for the region's economic problems as more maquilas shuttered their doors and moved operations to Asia in the early 2000s. The problem, they argued, was that the activists had tarnished northern Mexico's reputation as a good place for business, a reputation forged around the idea that women in Mexico are cheap and docile. And indeed, as I have argued, and others have as well, in contesting the cheapness and proving the docility of women to be a myth, the activists had taken direct aim at the political economy of export processing and neoliberal governments in that, governance in that part of the world. Uh, as they engaged in a political struggle over the meaning of women in public space. Within a couple of years, however, the battle over the meaning of violence would take a new turn as what is now known as drug violence turned the streets of northern Mexico into some of the most violent in the world. A preview into these events had occurred in 2003 with the grisly discovery of 12 men in a middle-class neighborhood, uh, in shallow grave in the backyard of a middle-class neighborhood, a few kilometers where some uh, eight women and girls had been dumped two years previously. Now when the, two, when the eight women and girls' uh, bodies had been found in 2001, there was an enormous outcry. In fact, the largest public demonstrations uh, in the city's modern history occurred with a convergence of activists uh, and, uh, and people who had not been activists before in their lives from within and outside the country. Uh, and marches and uh, uh, the, uh, the iconography of the femicide movement came about with the uh, creation of large crosses with dismembered mannequin body parts put in very uh, uh, prominent places in Ciudad Juarez and in Chihuahua City. Well, by contrast, uh, the discovery of the 12 men's bodies had no public out outcry whatsoever. The male victims, like the female victims, also showed signs of torture and were buried in a shallow grave in the backyard of a family home. 
The government immediately declared the murders drug violence, narco-violencia. The house was referred to as a narco-casa, a drug house, the shallow grave as a narco-fosa, and the dead bodies as narcos. Their discovery, in contrast to those of the eight uh, victims in 2001, did not generate public protest. Civil society was largely silent. And now, a few years later, anti-femicide and social activists are struggling in this context of violence. They are struggling not just with the difficulties of organizing in a climate of fear, which is tremendous, of holding marches and streets that are, that are the scenes of horrific crimes. They face also the challenge of fighting the epistemological crisis generated by violence and the government's militarized response to it as they fight the government's interpretation of this violence as that of drug violence, of the victims and the perpetrators as narcos, and the lack of investigation in judicial process uh, and the repression against those who are trying to uncover what's going on. Um, since I've written this, <coughs> some of the people I rely on for interviews have um, applied for um, or trying to get asylum out of the country. Many people are trying to leave. It is a time of tremendous difficulty. The government's, so now I turn my attention to from femicide to the killing of youth. <clears throat> the government's discourse of drug violence repeats a blame the victim story that, like the discourse of public women, hinges upon a gendering of the public sphere to explain how what counts as drug violence emerges from disputes internal to the drug trade. The violence, in short, according to this discourse, is perpetrated by criminals against criminals. Yet, unlike the victims whose deaths are explained within the public woman stories, the victims of drug crimes are public men, and grasping the meaning of this gender distinction is important for understanding how the government normalizes and even justifies the violence as acceptable for northern Mexico. The description of the violence as that resulting from criminal against criminal is key to the government explanation that the violence is not random, and therefore the victims are not innocents. Whereas the public woman discourse vilifies female sexuality, as a powerful element that turns otherwise peaceful men into violent lunatics. The government's discourse of the drug violence revolves around a de depiction of the criminals as inherently rational and driven by the masculine impulses of competition for power, territory, and honor, a competition that frequently involves instrumentalist violence. A key component of this discourse <clears throat> is that the murderers target people for specific reasons. The violence, again, is not random. Since these reasons are internal to the drug trade, the general public cannot know them. But as the violence reflects the killing of criminals by criminals, the general public, which is largely innocent of criminals, need not worry. The public can trust that the criminals are rational enough not to kill people not involved in the drug trade. And it can trust the government's assertion that all victims of the drug violence are criminals. Otherwise, why would they have been murdered? Unlike, unlike public women, therefore, the government's depiction of the murderers as men killing as part of the drug violence does not vilify them for being in public space. This space is the domain of masculine rationality, mas masculine rationality in the world of business, politics, and citizenry, and criminal activity. As such, the criminals are problematic because they are involved in crimes, but they are not, like public women, perversions of nature. They are rather understandable masculine characters, and if you willingly associate with them, you under, and you understand the rules of their criminal games, the rules as the murderers are governed by reason. 
A clear explanation, illustration of this discourse is found within the 2009 advisory issued by the Chihuahua City Department of Municipal Civil Protection. It's doing this in relation with the military troops um, and the kind of the, now the militarization that had occurred in this part of this country, which had worked directly with federal officials in, in its security strategies. In, a, in an advisory entitled, quote, How to Behave with Hitmen and in Shootouts, end of quote, that was an advisory that was circulated in the press and in uh, newspapers and other media like that, the government coaches the Mexican public on how to behave rationally when confronted with a killer. The advisory tells people that the hitmen who work for the cartels take several measures not to confuse their targets with innocent victims. And it urges people stopped by hitmen to comply with their requests for identification. And as the hitmen ask you who you are, tell them who you are. Give them your license. It tells you to do this. The advisory also counsels those who are stopped by the hitmen to stop their vehicles, raise their hands, and to comply without raising trouble. The advisory reassures that only those who owe something to the hitmen have, have reason to worry. At no point does the advisory suggest that those stopped by the criminals contact authorities or request identification from those stopping them. It, uh, the, advisory, the advisory further reminds the public uh, that if they have not done anything wrong, they have nothing to fear, and they will not be killed. The basic message is, don't lose your head if a man or a teenager, teenager points a gun at you. He will only kill you if you give him a reason to do so. Faith in his rationality is your best bet. The unstated implication in the advisory for those who are sought by the hitmen is that they deserve what they have coming. They have no recourse. Everyone knows the rules. This government story of rational drug hitmen started forming in the mid-1990s with the consolidation of the northern drug cartels and its related violence that captured international headlines along with the news of the femicides and the passage of NAFTA. Common within these stories was a description of those leading the drug trade as, in the language of a major newspaper covering the Mexican drug trade said, a sort of investment banker, a cocaine businessman, and cool-headed. Through the 1990s, a vast literature emerged in Spanish and in English, along with movies and other popular media that has reinforced the image of the drug trade leaders, capos, as powerful men who do not tolerate insubordination or challenges to their authority and, use, and who use violence to control their business if necessary. Such messages find echo with the public communications by the drug gangs themselves, who through their messages on narcomantas, that is drug banners, that is, they're often bed linens with painted lettering that are posted on buildings or suspended from bridges, that uh, in their words, they portray their organizations as staffed by businessmen with families that hold conservative social values. They do not kill innocent victims, women, and children. They may be murderers, but they are still good patriarchs. By the mid-2000s, hmm, I should also say that they frequently insult each other by referring to their uh, their nemeses as homosexuals and in very feminized language. So a way to really uh, um, insult your uh, counterpart is to uh, uh, emasculate him. By the mid-2000s, with street battles escalating in brutality and frequency in border cities, the national and international press increase increasingly questioned the Mexican government's ability to govern and to control the violence. In response to such concerns, the Mexican government mainly repeated the, the discourse of drug men who use violence as part of their business strategy. As the mayor of Nuevo Laredo put it in 2005, it's a little bit farther um, south and east along the border with Texas, quote, the media are being very alarmist. 
Sure, there's a drug war, but it's between traffickers. The tourists go home safe and sound, end of quote. Consequently, even if the Mexican government may not be able to control the drug trade, it does protect those who are not involved. This interpretation was initially put to a test, a powerful test, when in 2006, the then U.S. ambassador issued a travel advisory for, uh, for the Mexico border, for that is U.S. citizens traveling on the Mexico border. The, Mex the, then uh, the then Mexican president, Vicente Fox, likened this advisory to an attack on Mexico's sovereignty. Uh, and there was a, a big uh, exchange about this. Uh, the U.S. has since finessed its news of the border violence and now constantly reinforces the Mexican government's stability um, uh, even as it does continue to issue advisories. Uh, another key aspect of the drug war discourse lies in its declarations that the public spaces of the crimes are actually off limits to the public state when uh, drug wars uh, events occur. Um, in brief, the, the violence in the drug trade, just as sort of these behind-the-door decisions that, that capos are taking when they're deciding to use violence against each other and control their business, the, the violence in the drug trade that occurs in areas not patrolled by the state, that is, once this violence has occurred and it's part of the drug violence, then the state steps back. There are, the, the investigations do not occur. It's called drug violence. Everything is understood, and that's, that's what it is. Because this is the domain, the drug war is both a metaphor for the part of the state that, you know, the, the limit to the state, okay, it is the, it is the outside of the state. And you see this also playing out in the actual spaces of the city. So while these events, these uh, assassinations, these kidnappings, these uh, extortions, these uh, violences of all kinds are occurring in public areas, they are, are by definition, by this discourse of the drug war, occurring beyond the reach of the state. And the people who engage in those activities do so for their private, uh, private reasons. While seemingly distinct from the government's dismissal of femicide as the outcome of families that not, cannot control their family members and their sexuality, both discourses deny the responsibility of the state in providing uh, a, a public safety uh, to its public. In other words, the uh, security for the state does not seem to be connected now to public safety. Moreover, uh, like the uh, government's discourse of whores that normalizes the violence against women, the drug violence discourse also explains that while the violence is unfortunate, there is the silver lining of social cleansing. Just as the disappearance of whores from streets result in a cleaner city, the killing of criminals by criminals also removes undesirable elements from the urban landscape. As a business leader explained to a New York Times reporter uh, in the mid-1990s, and this is something that you, uh, an idea that you hear from the 1990s really repeated um, more recently, I'll get to in a minute. He said, uh, quote, mostly you saw them, drug traffickers, killing each other. And this was, uh, said Mr. Niebla, the head of a local manufacturing group. Uh, more than making you concerned, said Mr. Niebla, it made you happy. They were wiping each other out, end of quote. Some 15 years later, the mayor Juarez explained that the violence would end when the criminals had ended up when, when the criminals had finished killing each other off. In other words, these people must die in order for others to live. Okay, it's it's just to get down to the like the extreme logic of this kind of of these kinds of ideas. These discourses uh, have only intensified, along with the violence that has spiraled since the arrival of federal troops and police in Ciudad Juarez uh, in recent years. Uh, human rights abuses uh, have been uh, reported at uh, unprecedented rates uh, uh, also 
in, in during the same period of time, that is, rights abuses by government agents. Now having to explain why the violence under the military's watch has broken all historical records in the city, government officials have added a new twist to the drug violence discourse and the pivotal role of masculine rationality within it. Namely, and this is an important twist, it's a little bit, it's like a, just a slight shift, but it's very important. Namely, officials now increasingly explain that the growth in violence that has accompanied the presence of troops and federal police in Ciudad Juarez reveals the government's success in disrupting the internal business dynamics of the drug trade. They've had to, to do this because clearly many, many innocent people are killed. Okay, with, with, with since, particularly since 2009, when, uh, in 2010, which was just a terrible, terrible year of violence, many children, uh, many people uh, who clearly were not involved in the drug trade uh, were uh, victimized. Uh, and so the government's uh, blanket response that it's criminals uh, hit hitting criminals, while they have not fully given up on that uh, strategy of explanation, they also now have to explain something about the clearly the innocents who are killed. So what they are saying is that the violence now reveals a positive outcome to their strategy. So whereas the violence before had been the justification for sending in the military and for sending in the federal troops, uh, which were going to come in as a way to stop the violence, that now the increased violence, the violence that has, has spiked since their arrival, is now an indication of their success. Uh, because it indicates that the, the cartels are becoming increasingly erratic. As the Federal Attorney General explained to the Associated Press in 2009, here's some of this idea coming out now, quote, this violence is not reflecting the power of these groups. This is reflecting how they are melting down in terms of capabilities, how they are losing the ability to produce income, income end of quote. The government therefore has generated a meltdown of formerly powerful and solid businessmen who are losing their capabilities. Violence once that once justified the deployment of troops now justifies the existence of those troops and the federal police in the city. But it only, we, you know, we, the only way to kind of get through this is if we really get, again, to the gender dynamics of how this discourse works. That, in other words, these, ra these rational men, these cocaine businessmen, these investment bankers, these men who don't target innocents, are losing their rational edge. They are becoming hysterical. For example, in 2001, in sorry, 2010, after the detonation of a car bomb in Ciudad Juarez that killed, that killed several, the federal attorney general explained that this apparently random act of violence demonstrated, quote, a desperation within the cartels. They were under pressure from the government crackdown, end of quote. After a subsequent car bomb was detonated in another border area, the president released a statement indicating his view of the bombings as further evidence of the cartel's business stru structure in struggle, in crisis. Uh, in claiming such credit for turning rational men into less rational ones uh, and formerly solid businesses into faltering ones, the Mexican government is also perhaps taking credit for unleashing the violence that is terrorizing northern Mexico, if not only inadvertently. And so the question that begs attention, if the violence indicates success of its governing strategies, then does the Mexican government plan to or should it continue creating the conditions by which more violence occurs? The logic of this uh, refashioned irrational businessman discourse has received direct backing from the U.S. government, which has authorized uh, $1.5 billion in support of the Mexican's drug war and, and is about to authorize a lot more. For instance, in echo of the Attorney, Attorney General's statement above, a spokesman for the Drug Enforcement 
administration told the Associated Press, quote, the reason you see the escalation in violence is because U.S. and Mexican law enforcement are winning. You're going to see the drug traffickers push back because we are breaking their back. It's reasonable to assume that they are going to try to, fi to fight to stay relevant, end of quote. Similar logic is found in a 2009 Vo Voice of America report in which the then U.S. Director of National Int Intelligence clearly articulates this new e discourse. He says, quote, Mexico is in no danger of becoming a failed state. The violence we now see is the result of Mexico taking action against the cartels. So it is the fact that it is in fact the result of positive moves which the Mexican government has taken to break the baneful influence that many of these cartels have had on many aspects of Mexican government and Mexican life, end of quote. His statement found backing by the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Narcotics, who announced, quote, we firmly believe the Mexican government is taking the steps that it needs to take and is being quite courageous as it confronts a significant problem. The Mexican people are paying a very high price because drug-fueled organized crime groups are killing each other. But I believe, and I think the Mexican government believes, that only through this sort of very effective, systematic work can they retake the streets, end of quote. Important to recognize is that even within this discursive shift by the Mexican and U.S. governments regarding uh, the, the violence and taking credit for the violence now as a positive outcome, both governments still maintain that the principal victims of the drug violence are those who willingly engage in the drug trade and that the violence itself still points to a form of instrumental rationality, this time now by the uh, government against the less rational drug cartels. Academics, activists, and journalists who question this version of the violence have, like the activists, activists within the anti-femicide movement, had to contend with the federal government's <coughs> negative portrayal of them as troublesome elements who are at best naive and who, at worst, are themselves linked to the drug trade and therefore guilty of the violence that befalls them. Since 2008, many activists have been murdered, many of their families have also been targeted, many of their homes have been torched. Such was the case of Maricela Escobedo, who was gunned down in the threshold of the Chihuahua State Capitol in December 2010 as she gathered signatures for a petition on judicial reform. Such was the case of Josefina Reyes, whose murder in 2010 was followed a year later by the kidnapping, torture, and murder of three other family mem members and the burning of their home. When their, when their bodies were found along the side of a highway in 2011, the Mexican government suggested that they were tied to the drug trade, an assertion that was backed by the U.S. government as its judi judiciary weighs uh, political asylum applications from this family. And in fact, the, the judiciary has granted political asylum now to, Mexican, uh, to several Mexican activists, and this is unprecedented. So you have the judiciary in the U.S. Uh, uh, at somewhat at odds with the federal uh, uh, political position from the administration. I'm, I'm not heading to the conclusion here. After the 2009 murder of a popular sociology, sociology professor and friend of mine, Manuel Arroyo Galvan, from the city's, uh, he's a professor at the city's main public university, many activists and scholars sharply resisted the lumping of his murder into the dangerous catch-all of drug violence. We will not let them call him a narco, a friend of mine said. Several marches since then have occurred. Other students and professors have been killed as they fight the war of interpretation over the, uh, over the violence in a context in which the government still blames the victims of violence for their murders while taking credit for the violence as indicative of positive outcomes to militarization that has resulted in the uh, breaking the backs of the uh, cartels. The protests against this logic, like the protests against femicide, are fighting the overlapping logics of neoliberal assaults on the public sphere and the militarization of civilian space. 
of the gendering of rationality such that violence is constitutive of a, masculine, a rational masculinity, of the gendering of space such that a woman's presence on the street remains an open invitation to rape and murder, of the perpetration of a social hatred of the poor, of women's bodies, of young men. The efforts to organize in a climate of extreme violence and uncertainty that is northern Mexico today uh, are facing the convergence that Esther Chavez so clearly identified as that as capitalist exploitation, a corrupt state, and social hatred. So many activists know that they are organizing at the intersections of multiple crises that unfold where the discursive and material mingle uh, within the shifting dynamics of every day. That is, that they, they know that there are multiple crises. So they don't necessarily need scholars to say they are in, a, they are in crisis. So I think that, um, just as a way to conclude here, a related challenge for activism in relation to this war stems from the overall fear and the fatigue it generates in the city where studies indicate that depression as a result of fear affects a sizable uh, portion of the population. It's difficult to organize when one is depressed. In describing the difficulty not only in organizing others, but also in fun finding the will to act in public, one longtime friend, activist, and scholar said to me in February 2011, quote, sometimes you just don't want to think about this anymore. I know that's a terrible thing to say. Sometimes you just don't want to think, end of quote. Such reflections compel us to ask, as Hannah Arendt did while contemplating totalitarianism, what happens to a society when people are too afraid to think? And what are the tools that we can develop in order to push thinking beyond fear into progressive uh, political action? Thank you. Thank you very much for that very somber analysis. Um, so I'll just uh, allow those people who have to leave before questions. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll try and take just one question at a time, but then obviously if, if too many people are asking questions, we'll start bunching you. So uh, would you, uh, can you wait until yes, the mic and just say who you are? And, uh, yeah. um, hello, I'm a student from Goldsmiths. University yeah, doing yeah. any anthropology. Um, I was just wondering, in the whole presentation, you didn't, or the lecture, you didn't mention the role of the media very much. What would you say has the publication of images <coughs> and descriptions of killings, which are labelled as narco killings, on in both newspapers and on websites, done for the exacerbation? Um, kind of increase and for of both killings and of narco politics, as you call them. Mm -hmm. Should I go? Yes, yes. Okay, thank you for the question. Um, my uh, my critique of the discourse of the drug war is uh, is is I attempt to make it very widespread because it is not just the media; it is it is such a widespread uh, way of explaining this violence and of creating certain kinds of images and pre-existing storylines so that uh, rather than really getting into the details of what's happening in this uh, place, uh, we have this, this story of drug, of drug uh, crimes and, and uh, um, the mafia and these narcos running around. Um, and so the media, yes, use this in an uncritical uh, way, but I think that, I think that it's, uh, I, I feel that this is where scholars can really step in, is to try to get a critical analysis that can be 
graspable so that uh, uh, journalists can start questioning this, 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 these quick labels like drug violence. Um, in Mexico, Mexico is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist. Many journalists have been murdered. Many are seeking political asylum uh, for covering these events, for trying to dig deeper into uh, the, uh, the problems here, the lack of investigations. Uh, and Juarez is an interesting city in this respect. Many of the uh, newspapers uh, along the border have taken positions that they will not cover uh, the violence uh, in, a, in a deep way. Uh, and uh, kind of made a pact, but the city of Juarez, the newspaper there, did not make this pact. Um, and uh, some people have paid dearly uh, and their families. So it's, it's a very difficult time to be a journalist who is trying to get at what's going on here to expose some of the details of this narco war. But and you do see now uh, there are some uh, uh, now that I'm saying this, actually, I need to incorporate this. There are some journalists who are calling it the so-called, the so-called drug war. Uh, so you see that now, that so-called kind of coming up. Um, many journalists do not sign their articles any longer. So um, it's a very tricky time. But what I, I think the, the gist of what I'm trying to say is question, question the discourse, question the story, ask yourself, how does this story of drug violence make sense to me? You know, what, what, what am I drawing upon for this to, to come together as an understandable explanation of these events? Uh, what, what are the pre-existing elements of the story? So that's, that's what I'm trying to do here. And it's not to say that there, there isn't violence going on that one could call a drug war. But I'm asking you to have a critical reflection of that, of that terminology particularly when it comes to, when we're, you know, we're talking about who's doing the killing. What we do know is that young people are killing each other. It's young people killing young people and they are poor. They are come from the humble uh, economic, very humble economic circumstances. Um, and, and that is what we, we do have empirical evidence of that and who they are. They are teenagers and in their early 20s. Okay, I have one in the second row here. Hi, I'm studying gender and culture at Goldsmiths. Um, I'm Mexican, so it's particularly relevant to me. And I, I was wondering more about uh, the feminist, um, the feminist point of view, because we're having federal elections next year. So um, it is known that half of the people who will be able to vote, they are 18 between 18 and 22 and half of them, or more than that, are women. Mm -hmm. So do you think there will be a significant shift in the northern part of Mexico? Because the, the female vote will be really, really important next year for the first time in, in decades to choose a new president. And obviously, the same party won't ever <laughs> go again. Um, mm -hmm. Because they said that we, uh, we the, the generation that will now vote has forget the, the dominant and the totalitarianism of the, mm -hmm. the other party. Yeah. So there is strong uh, feelings that they will come back. Yes. Uh, so what are your comments on that? Well, I, I, I on agree. The feminist there are strong thing. feelings that, uh, that the, the current federal party is the PAN, the uh, National Action Party. 
uh, and they, uh, the, the PAN has had its stronghold in the 1980s and 1990s in northern Mexico. Juarez was one of the first cities to, to elect a non-governing party mayor, and this was through a tremendous amount of protests. In fact, some of the groups that have been active, particularly in the anti-femicide movement, uh, became seasoned activists during the marches and the protests for multi-party elections. So Juarez uh, was uh, a city that elected a PAN mayor, one of the first ones to do so. Then it elected the PAN governor, uh, Francisco Barrio, the one who famously said that the crimes were normal. Uh, and he, this was after a lot of protests, many of them violent protests, and tremendous marches in the 1980s and 90s. But the PAN has not won the city mayor's office in the last two races, nor the, nor the governor's office. So the, the PAN has already lost its base in, in Chihuahua, which is very interesting. Um, and I would say your idea that, that there are strong feelings that the PRI will come back are the same as what I'm hearing. Hi, I'm a student of international relations here at LSE. Um, the claims that, um, the excuses that the government has made for the rise of violence is quite preposterous. What do you think is the um, U.S. interest in, in backing up these claims? Well, <clears throat> Mexico uh, is uh, uh, along the U.S.'s southern land border, 2,000 miles. Um, and uh, the idea of stability in Mexico has always been treated as a strategic political interest by the U.S. government, which was very supportive of the pre-government the pre government, uh, which uh, uh, a well-known writer, Carlos Fuentes, called the perfect dictatorship. It was the longest standing party dictatorship in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and so the U.S. looks for stability, okay? Uh, capitalism requires stability of markets. Uh, U.S. Uh, ex uh, wants stability on its borders um, of some kind or another. And uh, so there's... Um, and that's not a surprising kind of analysis to, to, to offer there. Uh, the U.S. Uh, federal administration has always been um, uh, in tight relationship with the Mexican uh, federal administration. Mexico is also the third largest trading partner for the United States. It was the second until it was replaced by China uh, just a few years ago. So it's a very important part of the U.S. economy, but also socially. There's a very large uh, Mexican and Mexican-American population in the United States. Uh, and uh, relationships with Mexico are, is a very important uh, element to that population. Uh, and um, so it is a, a very, uh, so policies regarding immigration, that's why they're so controversial. Uh, they're those on the right and the left um, and uh, over what uh, immigration means. Uh, and uh, this will certainly be one of the largest main, main issues in the upcoming U.S. federal uh, election. Um, also, uh, I think something to keep in mind here is that while Juarez has uh, had some of the worst uh, per capita violence uh, uh, figures in the last few years, the city of El Paso, which is directly across from it, was the safest per capita city in the United States in terms of violence. And so there is an effort by some in the United States to say the violence is coming over from, from El Paso, from Juarez and coming over from Mexico, but actually the empirical evidence uh, indicates quite quite otherwise, that actually U.S. border cities are some of the safest in the country when it comes to per capita violence. Okay, um, so we're going to get a number. Uh, you're going to have to start taking groups of questions okay. soon. I'll take a couple of questions. So purple at the back um, there, and then, and then, then you on the, on the right. Yes. 
Oh, that's been answered, right? Okay. Right, over to you. So just behind you, just behind you there. Yes. Hi. Um, it was a really interesting talk. Thank you very much. Um, I was just wondering, um, when you're saying um, the criminal killings are by poor young people against poor young people, and you said that um, women are actually involved in this as well, what sort of percentages or numbers are you looking at in terms of women being involved, and how does this affect the sort of machismo discourse that is being perpetrated, uh, perpetuated by, um, by the government, um, especially because of how you're talking about the sort of binary models of you know public men versus public women, and it's kind of interesting to see that there are these machismo discourses coming out. But if women are involved, how does that affect the dynamics of violence against women, mm -hmm. with, um, perpetrated by men? Can I just go ahead? Yes, yes. Um, thank you for the question. Um, the the uh, I don't have the number on percentages. The numbers are all funny numbers. They're, they're, none of the numbers are really right. Okay, but, but what we do see is a, a, a tremendous trend up. Uh, and um, the percentage of women has always been a fraction of, of the overall murder rate. And this is, um, and, but, but there's still uh, several hundred women have been, uh, over, not quite 300 women, that's a terrible way to put it, have been murdered this year uh, 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 in a violent uh, crime. Um, that's the number, that, again, I said the numbers don't, I don't like to focus on the numbers themselves. What's been very important, and I'm going to say this, it's not exactly the question you asked, but what's been very important in the anti-femicide movement has been a need to address the question of why are we focusing on the women when there's so many men who are dying? Uh, and what the uh, femicide activists have said, uh, particularly Esther Chavez, was very uh, articulate on that. She said, we're not just focusing on the women, but in focusing on the women, it is we are opening up a lens to look at the connection between this violence and, the, uh, and our system of government and economy. And that by really getting in on this, on this basically a feminist analysis, we can see uh, how the violence is, uh, exposes something terribly flawed about our political economy. Uh, and another question that you know, anti-femicide activists have often had to say is, look, why does this isn't the worst? or violence against women. Why is all the fuss? That's what Francisco Barrio was trying to say in the mid-1990s. And the activist said, well, you know, we're not in competition here to be the worst. We've just said basta. We're organized, and we said this is bad enough. And so really, what, the reason why people know about femicide in Mexico, and one of the re outside of Mexico, and one of the reasons why they even know about how bad the, the violence against the narco-violence, uh, what's called narco-violence is, is because there, there has been this a legacy in this history of social movements where people have, have screamed and hollered and gotten the problems publicized, whereas you haven't heard about it so much in Oaxaca or even in um, uh, Chiapas or other parts of Mexico or other parts of the world. So that uh, it's, it's the, 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 the fact that, that so many people do know about the violence and that it's problematic nature has something to do with the social organizing and the protests. Um, so women and men are victimized, uh, and uh, women and men participate <laughs> in the crimes, but men dominate on, uh, in a very large majority on both sides. Okay, um, I've got one, one at the front here. Two. You just keep your hands up so I just take a note of you. Um, hi, yeah, I'm uh, from the Gender Institute. Um, 
I found your analysis very persuasive of the interpretive wars, but I just wonder if you could say more about something about the specificity of Mexico and why the kind of political economy issues that you refer to as being in the background, why is it that the form that's being taken by resistance or by, what, what, how do you actually account for the association that you're drawing between the political economy and the violence and why is the violence particularly strong here as opposed to other areas that are suffering from the same kinds of problems mm -hmm. uh, associated with the neoliberal agenda. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, thank you for the question. Uh, the, uh, I'll, tr I'll try to answer this quickly. Um, with the creation of the maquiladoras as the engine of growth uh, and economic growth, but also uh, uh, as a way to begin to privatize uh, and to, to break down the agreements between the Mexican state under the former pre and the laboring population. That is, that the, the, uh, there, there were certain arrangements made and some of those were subsidies for food and subsidies for housing rather than, so that in order to maintain a minimum wage at a low rate so that you know, the government establishes a minimum wage and the maquilas accept that, the, the factories accept that minimum wage so that when people have protested for uh, wage increases, they don't protest the company, they protest the government, right? So um, <clears throat> there's, there was a, a breaking down of that, an erosion of that, more in northern Mexico, particularly in the Maquilador zones, than in other parts of Mexico prior to the 1982 neoliberalization strategy. So it was sort of the neoliberalist ideas were, were already taking shape in the northern parts of the country. Then you have this transition of uh, male migrants who had migrated uh, up through the mid-1960s up through Juarez and the northern border areas to be braceros, that is farm workers who could get visas to work in U.S. seasonal agricultural activity. That program stopped. That was basically at the end of World War II and then stopped in 1964. The Maquiladora program got going in 1965 as a way to address the unemployment, but the factories wanted to hire women who had not never been informally employed in, uh, in the uh, industrial sector to any extent in the country and who had not formed the basis of those migratory networks. So there had been young men who had migrated. Now you have young women migrating uh, and traveling without their families or traveling with their children for the first time really in the country's history, well, since the Mexican Revolution. So you have, uh, Juarez was the city that received the highest percentage, the highest concentration of women because uh, it had uh, the factories that were the most labor-intensive, unlike Tijuana, which had more capital-intensive industries, Juarez had more labor-intensive industries. Women came in, uh, they, and they sort of took over the city, right? They, they took over uh, the cantinas, which had been oriented toward men, turned into discos, oriented toward young women who would get off work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and want to go have a good time because they were 16, 17, 18 years old and they'd been working all day long and they had a little bit of money to spend. They would go directly from, they, I'm talking about the past tense, I don't know why, they still do, go from place to the work to a place to dance. Uh, and so you see uh, in urban space you see shifts. You see shifts in the neighborhoods, uh, the, the civic sector. And, and so I, 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 I go into this at length in some other publications, but it's a very important to look at these kinds of transitions. But I think, why, why is there so much violence in Juarez? I mean, there's a lot of, you could say there's a lot of resentment and anger and frustration over the lack of employment opportunities. Uh, the idea of working in a maquila is often described as emasculating for men because it was initially the place where women work, even though now it's about 50-50 for maquilador employment, but still in the, on the assembly line, it's about 70% female. So there's certainly a kind of emasculation. But 
but still, I think that what I try to focus on in my work on the social movements is that one of the reasons why we, we talk about the violence so much in Juarez is because these organizations have put the violence, have politicized it. There's been a lot of violence against uh, poor people in many parts of the world and against women in many parts of the world that hasn't been politicized. And one of the things I'm trying to turn attention to is that how actually there has been very effective organizing that has politicized this violence, that does not accept it as uh, an invisible part of society. So um, that's another way that I address the question. But I think we have to, I think you have to get it at both angles, which is the political economy and the structures of politics and, and economics that have contributed to certain um, uh, problems. I mean, and, and um, the, the lack of services, the lack of education, the lack of um, medical services, the lack of running water, all of this creates a certain kind of desperation uh, and problems in these communities. And there was a, a, a quote uh, from a, a woman two weeks ago in a newspaper. She was in Juarez at a job fair. She was standing in a line uh, for her son, who's a teenager, and there was, a, you know, a, a, I don't know how many openings, not very many, and there were hundreds of people standing in line for very, very few openings. And she'd been standing in this line for many hours, and she said, I'm doing this because he can make $50 to kill somebody. But she was standing in this line to try to, to figure out another way for him, you know. So I think that really getting into why, why do young men want to live short, short lives? And they know they're going to live short lives. Why, why is that? <laughs> a viable option? What has made it viable? And <clears throat> so that's, I think, just some of the stuff that we just need to start really throwing out there and getting out. OK, can I take two from the middle now? So the, with the cap there, and there was, uh, and then the, the there, yeah. <coughs> So if you could just take two questions and then answer them together. Hi, I'm a student at the Gender Institute. Thank you for your insights. I was wondering if you have any analysis on what um, overall discursive meaning of the U.S. involvement in particular around how this the involvement of the U.S. constructs the U.S. as a benevolent savior in terms of accepting asylum, asylum seekers and, and such. Okay, and then the second question. I thank you for your talk. I am at LSE doing development study. Uh, I was wondering, I take the critique on the neoliberal policy, especially with the maquilas, and of, of course it's already been mentioned that it's poor young men killing other poor young men, and I was wondering if you see an economic element to the solution out of this, if you've done any work or thought about sort of neoliberal policies haven't seemed to work, NAFTA, trade, are creating these bad situations, sort of what's the next economic iteration of what needs to happen? Okay, thank you. Um, all right, <clears throat> the discursive meaning of the U.S. This is actually, I think, a really interesting question uh, for Mexico right now. Uh, there is uh, a tremendous amount of controversy over uh, the idea of the United States. The FBI, for example, is involved uh, in some things. Uh, the, the U.S. military, the support for the military uh, approach to all of this. Uh, so this, these are things that are controversial and very much debated, uh, concerns about the U.S. control uh, that, you know, and the discussion of, you know, there's not so much violence in the U.S. The point of the drugs isn't just to cross the border, right? It's to get to their markets, and they seem to be doing that quite well. So, because you don't have all this violence occurring in the United States. So it's not just the consumer market of the United States is part of the, the engine that's pushing all of this. If you, obviously, without the consumption of drugs, and we wouldn't have so much drug trafficking. But 
Uh, also, the smoothness of the infrastructure on the U.S. side, uh, that the, uh, the illegal things that are smuggled seems to work. They seem to, you know, it's working some way or another. So that's, that's uh, in debate. The idea of the U.S. as a, a place of asylum, this is, I would say, a very small minority of the population is aware of this and talks about this, but this is actually something I'm looking at in a current study I'm doing. It's a collaborative project with um, geographer Juanita Sundberg uh, at the uh, University of British Columbia and uh, um, um, a political uh, scientist, Hector Padilla, at the University of Juarez. And one of the things that we're looking at is how people's experience of space in the city of Juarez right now has changed over the years of this violence and militarization. And something that's really interesting that's coming up out of this research is this idea of El Paso as a safe haven, even for people who uh, don't like to go to El Paso and who feel uncomfortable there. There's, it's the idea of a safe haven, uh, even if they're never able to get there, uh, that is coming up. Uh, so that there's, there is this idea that, uh, that's uh, surprising in the, in the research that we're encountering, and I don't really know what to make of it yet. But uh, it, I would say that there is a, a complex discourse about the U.S. and its role here and its contributions. Um, so maybe next time I'll have more answer. Uh, the question on what next, I, I'm not a very sophisticated um, uh, economic strategist. Just, I would say uh, uh, predictably more uh, support for public services uh, and jobs. Uh, that pay a, a living wage. Uh, so that would be great. <laughs> yes, naivety sounds good, right? Um, I think, in fairness to Melissa, perhaps just three more questions which I'll take together. So one at the back there, you've been trying to get in for a while, and then you, and then there was somebody here who's been trying to get in for a while. Who was it? Hi, Camille Stengel. I'm a Canadian um, visiting research fellow at King's College. I actually emailed you earlier about this talk, so this has been great. Thank you very much. Um, there's been discussion with um, academics, uh, NGOs, and different think tanks about uh, possibly uh, decriminalization and regularization of um, different illicit drugs, and that that there be a potential to decrease violence in producing and trafficking countries because of that. I was wondering based on your um, gender analysis of this violence, what your opinion was um, on that stance of decriminalization, regularization. Thank you. Uh -huh. um, can I just yeah, collect them together and then this question, your question? Yeah, actually, my question was, was going to be very similar to that. My name's Andrew, and I've been involved with uh, drug policy reform for a long time, um, partly because of my own personal experience of a lot of deaths, and also, um, you know, I could well have been one of the dead ones, so, you know, I have an interest in this, to put it mildly. But, um, you know, the, there were three uh, past presidents who came together and put this big paper out there, which basically said that, you know, unless we uh, legally regulate this market, you know, these countries are going to sink economically in an every which way. So, you know, he, they really... <laughs> Well, you know, they really kind of set the apocalyptic tone to this. And I just wondered whether you felt that... I mean, because I think, you know, that's a kind of long-term thing. I mean, I don't know when it's going to happen. It's got to happen, though. Um, but right now, there's all this kind of stuff going on all over the world, which is about the irresponsibility of the financial markets. And we're saying, some of us as activists, well, you know, there's a huge amount of money that's wasted, uh, you know, 
bringing about this so-called drug war. So why can't we bloody well use that to do something sensible and actually, you know, look after this situation? You know, look after people who are actually affected and so on and so on. So I just wondered what your thoughts were about that. Well, uh, there is uh, a lot of support for the idea of legalizing uh, uh, these uh, substan uh, substances, uh, a lot of support uh, in Mexico for this idea. Uh, it's even gotten some steam in the Mexican uh, uh, Congress uh, to talk about legalizing some, some drugs, uh, those that are, not all of them, some of them that are trafficked. Um, I think that, I, I personally think that that would uh, make sense uh, to regulate these markets. Um, and there's a lot of support, particularly among progressive scholars, for this approach. Um, so I, that's what I have to say on it. I mean, hopefully, I mean, obviously, obviously this, the, the role of smuggling, you know, borders, borders are, are places where smuggling occurs. You know, that, that's, that's just, they, they, they go hand in glove. And um, approaching the idea of smuggling in a very serious way, what it means for economies built on the idea of the crossing, the, the criminalization, and the creating of the illegal categories, the non-regulated category. Uh, and this, this is, there's some, I think, very interesting analyses about uh, how this contributes to a state of impunity. So that you, before you can have a state of impunity, you have to have that set aside. So that part of the paper where I talk about, you know, that, that domain that the state does not mingle in. That says it's not part of us, even if the street itself, that whole logic is allowed by this idea of the, the criminalized other to the state, the part that's outside, and that that is critical for impunity, for the state to offer impunity to the criminals. They have to say, this is your place, and they are basically ceding over uh, the, the public sphere in, in both its concept and practice as well as in the actual places of the public sphere. So. Um, Attacking that logic, I think, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm, I'm going to um, ask you in, in a minute to sort of join me in thanking Melissa for this very, uh, very powerful lecture and responses to the questions. But first, can I just say, um, we're having a reception um, now at 8 o'clock um, at the Gender Institute, which is on the fifth floor of Columbia House entrance uh, through the, uh, at the Old Witch. Um, so you're all welcome to join us here, join us there, um, and uh, continue the discussion. But now, can I just thank you, Melissa, thank for... You. Thank you. Really.